you're listening to Just Asking. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet, when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality, and certainly don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. Hi, this is Stephen Ng, and I'm with my friend Jackie, and we're talking not about sex, but about issues related to sexuality. What are we talking about today, Jackie? Well, the last time we spoke, Stephen, we talked about the list, right? This idea that we all have this preconceived, this person who I will date is going to be six foot two and have a PhD and um, have, you know, voluptuous hair, whatever it is, right? Right. Um, Where we got to, though, which was really interesting, is the list really should be more about ourselves than about the other person. Right. And, you know, from my way of thinking, when I'm thinking about what I want, it's like a little kid raised in a ghetto thinking about what he wants for Christmas when he has no idea of the amazing variety and wonderful, wonderful things he could get. And so he wishes he could get a hula hoop. And instead, his parents have bought him a bicycle. And he had no idea that he could even dream of such a wonderful thing. And it's the same way, I think, with both men and women. When you have a limited life, which we all do, right, when we're getting started, you never even conceive of how wonderful, wonderful could be, how wonderful a relationship could be when it's truly wonderful. It may, your own expectations, our expectations might be limited and are limited, as a matter of fact, by our own previous life experience. So like for me, I grew up in an alcoholic family with a lot of violence. Well... My dreams were to be in a home that had no alcoholism and no violence, which leaves you with just about a zero (laughs) because there's a real blank slate there. So you really don't want to get caught up in that trap of limiting yourself to your own imagination. Well, and, and what we've talked about before, we don't know what we don't know. Right. So everybody in my family has been divorced. And so when I was looking for a mate, I was looking for somebody whose family was not divorced. Right. So his parents had been married for 40 years and the siblings had all been stayed married. And what I didn't understand is that there's more to it than just staying married. Right. Because there are millions of unhappily married people who stay together for decades and decades and even maybe for an entire life. I remember one older client, he was talking about his failed marriage and uh, he was asked, so are you going to get a divorce? And his response was, what? And give up an apartment in New York City? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's, a, there's some reasons why people stay, stay married. There was even an, uh, a study done of elderly couples in the United States and the secret to the longevity of their marriages. And the researchers ended up terminating the study uh, early and because it was so depressing. Because person after person, couple after couple... They were interviewing for the secrets of a happy, happily ever after sort of marriage. And what they got was, well, our generation, you just didn't get a divorce. Or, well, that would have been really hard financially because we never would have been able to make it. And disrupt my whole life. Right. And so people... Just to be happy. People, exactly. <laughs> so happiness was really low on the list. And and that kind of makes sense, you know, if you think about our history in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where... When you, when you don't have your primary needs met for shelter and food and 
and clothing and that sort of thing, you tend not to dream beyond that. Uh, hungry people dream of having food. They don't dream of having a happy marriage. So you only get to dream about happiness once your civilization gets to a point where those primary needs are getting met on a regular basis. So we should talk on another podcast about um, the secret to a long-lasting marriage, <laughs> right? Because I'm assuming even though they don't know it, I'm assuming that you do. Well, I, you know, somebody asked me about this just yesterday, um, and I was, I, I think more, more than fixing a relationship that's not satisfying, I think the vast majority of, majority of us would do, rather than fixing a broken relationship and looking at how that would work, I think most of us would be far better served taking a look at how to build a great relationship from the ground up. You know, mo as you know, most of us spend a lot more due diligence buying a car uh, and looking at all the reviews and t going for test drives and asking questions about to our friends and family than we do with figuring out who we're going to marry. Which brings us back to the list. <laughs> See how that works. Um, yeah. So, so we've talked before about understanding ourselves, understanding what's maybe broken or um, really in a good place in ourselves before we try to bring another person into our, our realm. Right. Right. Yeah, because I'm going to have a hard time understanding what I want and what I need if I don't really know who I am. So for that reason, um, step number one for, for most of my clients who really are looking for a great relationship, not the ones who come in with a troubled relationship, uh, I advise them to begin dating and to begin dating somewhat um, intentionally so that they can perhaps knock out 20 or 30 different dating prospects over the next year or two, which is a lot. That's a lot of people. It's a lot people. of dating, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, it, well, but a reasonable amount because it's a, it's at least a date a week or a date every other week for a year or two. And that would mean that you'd be able to really run through a lot of your own choices. So you have a chance to reflect on what kind of people am I choosing? And that would tell you, each of us a great deal about ourselves because there are men who have horrible self-esteem. I know that's a stereotype of women only, but there are a lot of men who really don't know what to do in a relationship, but they know that heroism is really appreciated. And so they consistently look for damsels in distress who need fixing or re rescuing, which is fine if, if you're trying to be a hero, but if you're trying to find a partner that's a whole different activity, and that would that inequality that's built into being the helper who's helping the victim, that inequality makes for a terrible basis for a long-term committed relationship. Sure, and so um... so I'm, you know, that's that foundation. So once I start dating, I start learning about what it is I, I might be able to have or what I need, and I start collecting data. Oh, from this woman, I realized I really liked that what she did when it came to recreation. I loved the good times we were able to have when we were outdoors uh, skiing or backpacking or fishing or whatever it was we were doing. But I really liked this other woman because she really knew how to dress. And we went, we, when we were socializing, that just felt great to walk into that restaurant with her on my arm. 
But, you know, this other woman, she's really good for intellectual companionship and for conversation. And so this idea that I start learning not about other women, but about myself as a man. And I think for women, it's the same thing, right? As you start learning about what you like and what you're really enjoying in the relationship. And it's a continuous process of close, but no cigar. Close, but still no cigar. And But as I'm getting, as I'm picking, my own brain is being trained by me intentionally to do a better job of picking each and every time. So I may start with five damsels in distress, but by uh, number six, I'm finally switching over to women who really don't need to be rescued, women who kind of have their lives in, t in a together way, the way most adult women do. And it's the same with women, women who stereotypically collect stray dogs and are always taking them in because, oh, he needs some help. And that forms the basis of their relationship. They're equally doomed to a poor outcome. So what is it, you know, really, what is it that's going to be the list? If it's not about the other person, which is really about the limits of my imagination, I think it's better if we start taking a look at what I need because then I'm only limited by knowledge and I can increase my knowledge little by little by little by each failed relationship I go through. So that each failed, even if it's like a one-time date, that may sound extreme to call it a failed relationship. And, I, and it really isn't, but it, it, is, it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to because what I wanted was to find that special someone with whom I could have a happily ever after ending and yeah, the, that lady wasn't it, or that gentleman wasn't the one. So I learn a little bit more. I get better at picking, better at understanding myself. And then there usually are some very predictable things that we all need to consider. And I, I kind of wish I could teach the world to think about as they get this process going. Would you be interested in hearing some I of that? I would love to hear this, yes. <laughs> okay, because I think uh, some of it is... Some of it is, is going to be a deal breaker for many of us, but there are exceptional people who can work around the, some of these issues. But for example, almost all the world can be divided into introverts and extroverts. And for those who don't know the difference, it's really easy to remember an introvert is that person who recharges his or her battery when they're alone. And the extrovert recharges the battery when they're in the company of others. And the difference is it is is only that it's not about shyness it has nothing to do with friendliness you can have a very very friendly and outgoing introvert and you can have a very shy extrovert because i've met them but they definitely recharge their batteries when they are out mixing with others those shy extroverts so figuring out who you are you know uh, are you the sort of person who loves uh, being alone and, and the quiet of at home environment, or are you that sort of a person who just can't wait to go out on Friday, Saturday night because you've only been at work and those people are no fun, no fun. You need to get out there where you can really make something happen. So that's a big, that's a big thing. And what's funny about this one, um, I actually have this one, a huge extrovert. I'm a huge extrovert. And my ex-husband, um, was a huge introvert, but I didn't know that because he was so comfortable 
going out and spending time with people. He was a great conversationalist. So I didn't understand that. And we came back from a party one night and I was just so wired from this. And I'm like, okay, now what are we going to do? And he's just like, leave me alone. Just walk away from me now. And, you know, and we had a huge fight that night because I was so hurt and offended. And the next day we talked about it and I went, oh, okay. Right. Now that I know this. It's not personal. It's not personal. It has nothing to do with me. It's just who they are. And in, in hindsight, if you had known then what you know now, although he may have been a wonderful man and perhaps a wonderful date and even maybe a wonderful boyfriend for a time, would he have been an ideal marital candidate for you? Actually, I think I think just based on that, just based on the introvert extrovert thing, sure. You could have worked through it. We could have worked through that if I had known, you know, if Well, that's another thing. Yes, if we had known because here's what happens on all of these issues I want to bring up today is that if we, a lot of us are so limited in our experience because we just don't talk about these things that we think, "Oh, well, he's just he just is tired because it's this weekend. He had a hard week at work. Or she doesn't want to go out uh, because she has a bad body image. And, and I'll help her by complimenting her. Somehow, I will fix what is defective in this other person so that they will become more like, well, me. Well, one of the things um, that I figured out, my inner circle of friends, my, my inner, are all introverts. Wow. I know. I know. But what I've realized, though, is that they can only take so much of me, you know, <laughs> and I think that's why I have more than one best friend. It takes a village. It takes a village. <laughs> but but again, knowing that I don't take it personally when they say, you know what, I just I need to be by myself. tonight. it's like, OK, well, spend time with somebody else. And that's I, what I think I would do in a relationship with an introvert is they need to be alone now. And sometimes I need to be alone, but it's like they need to be alone now. And I'm going to go over here. Hang out with a friend. And hang out with a friend or go to a meeting yeah. or whatever, you know, I'm going to hang out with my social group. Yeah. And, and that would be an excellent way of working around that. But then, okay. So that's a good example of how an intelligent person might work around this, especially within a couple. But what if you had 20 items like that, yeah. that were really deeply intimate, personal items about who you are and the whole reason you got married or partnered up marriage by any other name, was to share your life with this person. And, and at some point, we all define this idea of sharing my life with the other person. At some point, we all identify sharing our life with another person to mean something specific. And for some of us, for example, it has something to do with affection. And affection would be a really great example of something that we can quantify we just typically don't. We usually use a binary uh, model like, well, he's affectionate, she's not. Right. And if we could all think in terms more like a continuum, like from, say, 1 to 10, and if 10 is the most affectionate couple you've ever known personally or seen on television, and 1 is the least affectionate, and you look at that relationship, and then you look at the other relationship, and you ask yourself, well, what's my sweet spot? Would I be a 10 or a 1 or a 5, which would be average or above average in terms of frequency of affection? Um, not in terms of value as a human being, but in terms of frequency of affection. Uh, am I an 8? Because I want to make it really clear, there is no moral issue here. 8s are not inherently superior to 3s. 
nor are threes inherently superior to eights, although they often argue among each other, you know, with each other. They often argue with each other as if, well, she's so needy. That's why she always needs to have her hand held. Or he's so insecure. That's why he always has to express affection to his girlfriend in public. So just to clarify, you're talking about physical affection. You're talking about hand-holding, the touching, the hugging, the kissing. Yeah, we could include verbal affection like uh, statements of I love you or uh, compliments, uh, you look beautiful tonight, or anything like that. But we all have, (laughs) as, as one writer pointed out, there's this love language business and there are these different languages of love. The problem with that is even if I'm aware of them, um, I'm, I can tell you, I'm the sort of guy for whom ironing my shirts never communicates love to me. Even if I know in her own mind that so means love and that she's just crazy about me because she's ironing my shirt, I don't feel loved under those circumstances. And it's the same way with a three when an eight is all over him or her. They don't feel loved. They feel overwhelmed, engulfed, invaded, un- really miserable with that. Sure. So, you know, we all have to figure out who we are on that. And then doing an intentional interview during dating is is where we learn all of this. And maybe we'll do a different podcast on the intentional interview. But finding out is really critical. Finding out is the person I'm really attracted to, in fact, the person I'm in love with and who I think is perfect in every other way, If they're at one end of that continuum, or even just, let's say, somewhere in the middle, like a four, and I'm an eight, or vice versa, is that really going to work? Usually not, because fours never aspire to be eights, and eights don't aspire to be fours. We could try to compromise by meeting somewhere in the middle so that, yeah, we could both be uncomfortable. Um, but that sounds like a really self-defeating pattern for setting up my future. And this is this is one that is a lot harder to not take personally. Yeah. You know, even if you yeah. know intellectually that that's just how they are, if they don't want to shake, you know, they don't want to hold your hand or kiss you or grab you or, and that's what you want. Well, especially if you don't talk about it. But if you, we can all remember the words of the Buddha and and let go of wanting. And really just interview someone with the goal of trying to get to know who they really are rather than trying to close the deal and get somebody who will work for us. If we can let go of that and and cultivate an attitude of detachment, then we can really hear them. Because a lot of us are telling each other. A lot of us go on dates and we really tell the other person who we are, but for whatever reason, maybe because we're too needy, we're too lonely, we're too horny, we really don't hear the message. We don't, we don't get what is obvious to, let's say, our friends or our family who are watching. Because every time I lean into her to give her a kiss, she's leaning away. And, and everybody else sees that, but I'm thinking, oh, isn't that adorable? She's shy. Well, and this brings us back to conversations we've had before um, about understanding our own understanding our own boundaries, understanding our own needs and wants. Because when you say the, the intentional interview, if I go out on a date with somebody, you know, before, obviously, these podcasts, because I'm so much smarter now, um, <laughs> and they're trying to get to know me, I'm not thinking they need to know my need for affection. I'm thinking they need to know where I went to college, what I do for work, you know, what where I want to be in five years. 
those right. kind of things. So I'm not thinking to share that. Right. Although, you know, then you bring up a whole nother issue and that's how men tend to evaluate women as if they were evaluating a man <laughs> and women tend to evaluate men thinking of them as if they're going to be, she, as if he's going to be her ne next best girlfriend. And really men don't generally care where you go to college. In my experience, we care about a lot of things, but if you meet a guy who's really preoccupied with where you went to get your degree, I think I might want to reevaluate that whole Good relationship. Point. Fair enough. <laughs> because I don't know that he's all that crazy about you. Um, so, you know, it's not a job interview, but it's an intentional interview. And we do need to know certain specific things about one another. And those are, you know, those are just examples. There's, there's probably, well, not probably, there are hundreds of different issues that we would need to interview the other person about. And I can give tons of examples, and I will, even in this podcast. But you can never let go of the f fact that it's not really about finding the ideal person. It's about finding the right person or the ideal person for me. It's about ending loneliness. It's not about finding the bestest person that the whole universe has to offer. It's, it's the end of my own loneliness. For example, um, let's talk about two variables that are independent but sometimes overlap and I get confused. And you brought it up, and that would be education and IQ. I have no... Um, acts to grind against people who have a different education level or a different IQ level than their mate. What I am concerned about is the end of loneliness. Because if I'm the sort of guy who has no interest in following the news, I don't know where certain countries are, and I don't really know all that stuff they teach you on Saturday morning cartoons about a bill. If, I, if I'm the kind of guy who really doesn't have intellectual curiosity about that part of the world and I'm dating a woman who is consumed with that sort of interest, that's, a, that's probably not a match made in heaven unless she looks forward to getting away from her, let's say, her work and getting back to her man who doesn't talk about the things that she finds so exciting in other areas of her life. You know, the other side of that is because um, one of the things I realized is when I date somebody who's so smart, you know, they're, they're highly educated, high IQ, um, but they know everything now. They, they know everything and there's nothing left for them to know. <laughs> I, and, yeah. And so there's, there's nothing that I can bring to them, nothing that they're going to be interested in that I heard on the news today or whatever, because they already know everything. Right. They're never going to stare you in the eye and say, gosh, Jackie, That's that is so interesting. So, so one, of, more. so one of my things, um, the right way that I rephrase that was um, somebody who's intellectually curious, who's open to knowing new things. Right, right. And that's, I mean, when you stop and think about it, that is part of why we form a strategic alliance with another human being and make what we call a family. It's because I already have one of me. I don't need another one of me. Right. I really need somebody who knows things I don't know and who sees the world from a uniquely, in my case, feminine perspective, because I see the world more or less from a masculine perspective. And with her as my privilege of w having a window on the world from that point of view, 
I get to see things I would never have seen and consider things from perspectives I would never have considered. It's invaluable. And I think any couple, even a couple of uh, the same gender, as long as they have that same respect for each other, to understand that two people come at the world from two completely different perspectives and they can share that. Well, that that's valuable, number one, in terms of solving problems, making money, uh, child rearing, having a great life in every way. But it's also really wonderfully refreshing in its role as a part of relieving the tedium and boredom of living my life alone because I'm with someone who's actually sharing their life, which part of which is sharing their thinking and their, their perspective on life. Right. So some, some form of intellectual compatibility. Right. So it's not necessarily true that you being college educated might need a man who's college educated or that you, and I don't even know what your college background is, but let's say you had a bachelor's degree and, oh, he comes on board with an MD and a PhD um, it's not as though that's a deal breaker necessarily. It's, it's really about, again, that level of engagement. And, and sometimes people are limited by their IQs. And sometimes we're limited by just our attitude of nobody has anything to teach me. I've met intellectually engaging and very curious people who have perfectly average IQs, but they were so much more socially available for intimacy and real, a real meaningful connection than people who had uh, tons of education. So you, you really have to interview each person. And this is one of the th reasons why, one of the many reasons I'm kind of against online um, selection of a mate, uh, because you don't get, I mean, you can get some stats, but you really can't get character. Okay, we're going to talk about online dating next. That's the next <laughs> podcast. So don't get distracted by that. Okay. Okay, so we were talking about different uh, traits and how to end loneliness by finding the kind of traits that I'm not just wanting, but really needing in my life. I can want somebody who backpacks and enjoys the outdoors the way I do, but what I need is somebody with whom I can share recreational intimacy, you know, the ability to safely share having fun together. I may want someone in my life who in, enjoys going to parties as much as I do, but what I need is somebody who is going to be able to share social intimacy where it it's safe for me to share that side of who I am with her and, and vice versa. So that can be done uh, simply by her going to a party or my going to a party separately and coming back home and it's okay that I went to the party. It, I'm not going to get punished for it. Oh, how was your day? What was it like there? Did you meet any interesting people? And we're sharing and we're talking and it's and I get, to, I get to ask the same questions of my mate as well. How was it at home? How did you enjoy yourself? Uh, what's been going on? What have you been doing with yourself? That kind of thing. And so it's really not about being identical. So if we talk about spiritual intimacy, and this came up just last week in a, a men's group I was working with. Uh, one of the gentlemen was concerned that any woman he dated might need to have exactly the same sorts of uh, fundamentalist Christian values and beliefs that he had. And as we started talking more about spiritual intimacy, uh, I felt drawn to the example of looking at sexual intimacy. And I asked him, I said, I, I think, I mean, I can't tell by looking at you, but I think you're heterosexual. 
And he drew back in some shock and said, of course, of course I am. I said, right, so um, you have sexual intimacy with women when you have it, right? Yes. What are you getting at? Well, my understanding is that her area down there below the equator is significantly different from yours. In other words, her genitalia is completely different from yours. Yes, but the difference doesn't prevent you from having intimacy, sexual intimacy with her. In the same way, I think you as a fundamentalist, if you were open-minded and really open to sharing your life in a meaningful way, as long as you could be safe and respectful and, you're, and get those um, behaviors returned to you equally, you could have a spiritually intimate relationship with an atheist or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Jew or anybody else. So let me ask you on this one, um, because for me on this one, it's that I want to be with somebody who believes in a higher power, somebody who believes in something bigger than us. And I don't really care how they define that. <laughs> but but it would be hard to be with somebody who just doesn't believe in anything. Would it be, and I have to ask you, and then this is the question I'd ask you if I were dating you, um, if I were an atheist, but I believed that society or mankind itself is a bigger power than I am. It's bigger than I am. It's more creative than I am. It's more important than I am. Would that be acceptable? That would be, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. So it's not necessarily a supernatural um, higher power, but something, at least if, a, if the individual you're dating can see that there's something in this universe that's greater than they are. So there's a certain, I think more or less, Sounds to me like what you're looking for is humility. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's a really interesting way to to get around to that. Thanks, and uh, I'll take that compliment. <laughs> you should do this professionally. <laughs> and and I think again, if I could take it a step further, it sounds like what you're really looking for is not somebody who believes as you believe in this way, but somebody who, no matter how they believe, would be spiritually and emotionally available. Does that and make sense? It does. It does. And somebody who. Because it applies to all these different dimensions of intimacy. Right. If you think about intimacy as a whole being um, the ability to safely share our lives with one another, and intellectual intimacy would be sharing my ideas with another safely, and emotional intimacy would be safely sharing my feelings with another. And you go through the 10 different dimensions of intimacy, then you realize, well, yeah, I could be with somebody who believed everything different from myself. As long as I felt respected and loved, you know, in the conversation, that could be great. And it really, and suddenly it doesn't matter anymore. Well, and, and back to your earlier point, um, if you're dating someone who's exactly like you, then what are you going to learn from them? Well, and you've already got one of those. So right. I don't need somebody exactly like me. But at some point, I do need some compatibility and for me, it would be in terms of that physical affection continuum, because uh, I, well, I, although I'm a guy who mistakenly thought I was a 10, well, I dated a 10, and believe me, I am not a 10, but I, and that's, that's a long and very funny story, but I'm, uh, I'm probably an 8 on a scale of 1 to 10, and for me, being with even somebody who was a 5 or a 6 would probably not cut it for me, so... You know, interviewing each other and finding out how to make it really safe for each of us to be okay with our truth is what's going to get us to where we need to be. And, and, and that would be a win-win situation because nobody wants to end up with 
life partner, no matter how lonely we are, if the life partner is completely unsuited to us. So another, you want another example of a, one of those needs that I can't really say it about the other person, but I can talk about it in terms of myself. I, I believe everyone out there who's listening to this has an ideal number of sexual encounters in their mind. Uh, let's call it per week. And for some people, we could get down into fractions, I suppose, with a time frame that short. But uh, imagine for this thought experiment for a moment. Imagine that you're with uh, someone who loves you as much as you love them. And they're as crazy about you physically as you are about them. And you are having your ideal relationship. And in that ideal relationship, how often would you be having sex? Well, I can tell you what most people come back to me and say, well, I could get by with, and then they give me a number, which is really like that poor child raised in poverty who dares not dream of anything being ideal. But if I could just let go of any inhibitions and limitations in your thinking, and as you're listening to this, quietly just think to yourself, what would my ideal number of sexual encounters be with somebody I was crazy about, somebody I loved? And not in the first week or the first month or even the first year. Once you've settled in. Yeah. Over a 30-year, 40-year, 50-year period of marriage, what would that be? And for a lot of us, the number is going to be something of a surprise even to ourselves. But whatever that number is, it's really not a number that's amenable to change. I know some of us are going to discover we like sex more than we thought. Others will discover we didn't like it, but nearly as much as we thought we were going to. But for most of us who are over a certain age and we have a certain amount of life experience, we have some clarity about how often we'd like to have sex. And it seems really reasonable to me that a couple who are really considering seriously whether or not they should form an extended monogamous commitment to one another they should consider whether and what that number is both in their own mind and in the mind of their potential partner. Because what sense does it make for me to try to get all of my sexual needs met with one person in a monogamous relationship if that other person is incapable of meeting my needs or not even interested in meeting those needs and not committed to meeting those needs? So. If I'm the guy who likes sex once a day and I partner up with a woman who likes sex once a week, uh, we could theoretically compromise. And about 30% of my clients say, well, what about compromise? Can't you just compromise? Yes. So 3.5 times per week, which means every other day, which means she's always going to be feeling pressured and I'm always going to be feeling starved. And that sounds like a terrible beginning to a long-term committed monogamous relationship, a lifetime of starvation. I, I don't think that's sustainable. And I don't, it, I think marriage and monogamy are hard enough without building failure into the, into the relationship. And this would be an example of building failure into it. So um, we should probably start wrapping this up, but I guess the, the bottom line on this. Is that because I talked about sex? Yes, it makes me very uncomfortable. Um, the bottom line is to understand what matters and what doesn't matter. To me as an individual. To me as an individual and, and the things. So when you start making your list, you know, even if you don't write it down, but understanding the items on the list, where they come from, what it is about me that I'm looking for and to understand what matters. And 
Yeah, and I don't even know that we talked about the universal ones that I could slip in here at the very end. The universal ones that, I mean, I think sobriety is one of those well, things. these are things we talked about in the last podcast. Oh, okay. So what I was going to say is if somebody's listening to this one first, out of order, because you're a rule breaker, uh, <laughs> go back and listen to the first one, because you do have the deal breakers on that. Okay, Yeah. great. Thanks, Jackie. This was really great. I was, I'm glad to have talked to you about this. This was interesting. Thank you. So if you have questions for Stephen, please tweet us at Stephen Ng MFT, and we will get to them in a future podcast. Thank you. This has been a production by Ng Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Pichelli. To listen to more episodes, visit StephenIng.com.